It's now the spring of 2010, and Chris Smith, that hunky ad exec, believes his partner, Ed Shin, might be stealing from him. It's not an unreasonable suspicion. Ed's been arrested and charged with embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from their former boss, Joe Gray. That case exposed a lot of things Chris told his family he didn't know. For instance, Ed Shin's business ventures have landed him in court before. Chris's brother Paul and sister-in-law Leah are his sounding boards. Were you surprised when Chris came to you and said, hey, I think that my business partner might be stealing from our company? I said, where are all your financial records? Like, I know you should have quarterly reportings or things of that relative nature. And he he said, well, Ed handles all that. And I'm like, mm. there should be complete transparency there, especially given his past behavior. And you could begin to see a lot of wheels turning in Chris's mind as he began to really come to the realization of who he was in business with. What's pushing Chris's stress levels even higher than the fear of losing his money is his fear that Ed will point a finger at him and drag him into his criminal case. He was super paranoid about him getting arrested, especially when I got arrested on October of 2009. That freaked him out because he thought he was next. In fact, Ed tries to shift the blame away from himself whenever he can. But the numbers don't lie. Ed embezzled. Chris did not. The investigators never charged Chris. But at this point, Chris seems to begin laying the groundwork to untangle himself from some of his businesses with Ed Shin. And Ed Shin, he also seems to want out. But out of Orange County, time and again, he escapes to Las Vegas. He often brings along his personal assistant, a man named Kenny Kraft. Of all the seven deadly sins, I'd say gambling's probably worst. No one goes out to Vegas to do anything good. I'm Matt Gutman. This is the second episode of 2020's Cutthroat Inc. In March and April of 2010, as Ed Shin's embezzlement trial approaches, Chris Smith has had enough. He wants to know what Ed is hiding from him. Chris isn't just worried about losing his portion of the profits, but also of losing his reputation just through his association with Ed. After all, it's not just accused embezzler Ed Shin who is named in a giant lawsuit filed by Joe Gray's company, LG Technologies. Chris's name is also right there in black and white. What's worse, when Chris asks for access to the 800 Exchange's bank statements, Ed refuses to give him the login details. That convinces Chris there must be something in them Ed does not want him to see. So Chris hires a lawyer, Ernesto Aldover, to protect his interest. He wanted to make sure that the money that belonged to him was secure. That's basically why we were negotiating to change all of these rules and, and put the money in an escrow account. On May 24th, the combined pressure of work and distrust is pushing Chris to the edge. He fires off a frenzied email to his dad about how disillusioned he is with the business world. 
The emails from Chris are voiced by an actor throughout the series. Man, what I didn't know existed out here is heavy in the business world. It pulls you away from all you like into a matrix of mind control to the system of fear and speed. It's nuts. Soon, though, with my persistence, I will break through the walls and come out the other side with loads of cash to go back to those days. Of course, lots of people talk about getting away from it all. They talk about the pressures of modern life. But Chris's girlfriend, Erica, later tells investigators, Chris seems to have been making arrangements for months. And by the way, as she speaks to investigators, you'll hear her dog barking in the background. Yeah, no, he talks about gold all the time. Did he ever, did he ever talk about the fact that he could trade gold um, overseas for a better rate than cash or anything like that? Um, not specifically, but he just mentioned how gold is just safer in general. So if he did do travel or disappear, he would just take all his gold with him. I see. Okay. So that was his plan was to take gold with him and not cash. Yeah. Chris is determined to see the 800 exchanges accounts and then maybe hit the road. He wants no printouts, no screenshots. Those can be photoshopped. Ed had been caught pulling that trick before. At the end of May, Ed agrees to plead guilty to embezzlement. In return, the prosecutors offer a deal that will keep Ed out of prison. If he settles the civil case with Joe Gray and pays $800,000 in restitution and court fees, Ed will be placed on probation. But to make this happen... Chris also needs to sign off on the civil settlement since he was named in that suit. The clock is ticking. They've got about a week to get it all done. Ed's attorneys are understandably in a hurry. The day after Ed made his deal, they start pressing Chris's lawyer, Ernesto Aldover, to get Chris to sign ASAP. Aldover emails back to tell them Chris can't sign today. He's attending to matters of a more personal nature. Chris's girlfriend, Erica, has had to put up with a lot lately. Mood swings, business trouble, lawsuits. She's just about had enough. So, that Memorial Day, Chris has promised her a romantic getaway. He's driving her up to Northern California. Well, it was supposed to be like... Him telling, you know, he was like, I can't live without you. I really want to make this up to you. Let's just get away and have this nice weekend trip. And it ended up just like a nightmare. Like we ended up with his friends. You know, we ended up drinking a lot. We ended up getting kicked out of a hotel. We were trying to sleep and his friends were like out on the balcony. Like we got kicked out of this hotel at four o'clock in the morning. It was, it was, ended up being like a nightmare trip. After that disastrous weekend, Chris goes back to work. He and Ed and their lawyers just want the deal inked already. Chris calls Erica that Thursday, June 3rd, with an update. Said, hey, I'm going to Vegas tomorrow to meet up with Ed. Um, we're going to talk about the business. He said I might sell my part to him because this lawsuit that Ed was in was getting really crazy. And he said that they had assets in Vegas that they needed to get, which I'm assuming was gold. The next day is Friday, June 4th. Ed really needs Chris to sign the document for his embezzlement plea deal to go through. Chris has said he will sign, but not until he sees the books. Ed has agreed to that. Even so, 
Chris emails his attorney that he's still worried and is going to try to pull a fast one. Just before 9.30 a.m., Chris hits the send button. We need to make sure he doesn't have room for fraud. He's itching to do it again. Late in the day, before they ever left for Vegas, Ed and Chris meet in their office. This has been hush-hush. Their employees don't know anything is happening. Chris does, however, confide in Erica that he and Ed will meet on their own. At 6.01 that evening, Chris's lawyer, Ernesto Aldover, gets another email from Chris. Chris seems to have switched gears. There's nothing about settling the lawsuit or seeing the 800 exchange accounts. Instead, Chris has said he has agreed to sell Ed his part of the 800 exchange and cut his ties to that business altogether. I agreed in principle with Ed to buy me out. 700K of the reserve will be paid in three installments. When Ed sends details, I will forward and we can discuss. A signed document faxed an hour later makes the buyout official. The deal Chris accepts doesn't give him much up front, but it does promise a big payout in several installments in the coming months. If you count the stack of gold coins Ed says he'll hand over, it's just about a million dollars. The next morning is Saturday, June 5th. The 800 Exchange's employees, including Paul, get an email telling them to work from home this coming week. This email is from Edward Shin, who was sent out to myself and all the other employees at 800 Exchange on Saturday, June 5th, 2010, 12.47 p.m. We will be closing the office next week. All employees will be paid their regular pay and asked to make sure their regular duties are performed for weekly operations. Chris and I will be meeting on the future of this company and request that you not come to the office during this time. Erica waits and finally hears from Chris. I got a text that, like, we arrived and we're here. And then I didn't hear from him. He said, I'll call you later tonight. That was on a Friday, and I never heard from him. Saturday, I texted him a few times, like, what's going on? Are you okay? And then finally, at the end of Saturday night, he texted me and said, it was just been really heavy. We worked some stuff out. Everything's fine. You know, I'll call you later. Chris's lawyer sees in an email that Ed has paid that first installment and that Chris is okay with the deal. I got 30K, 10% wire in this morning, and got the coins, so I'm good there. Everything else is good to go, so we can cancel escrow. We'll update when ready. Thanks, buddy. Chris. On Tuesday, June 8th, Ed sends his employees another email. He now informs them he bought Chris's stake in the company and that now he is the sole owner of the 800 exchange. Chris's sister-in-law, Leah Smith, felt something like this was coming. That he would break his partnership with Ed by the sale of the business and leave, yeah. Did his stress manifest in any way? Did he, did he uh, show it in any way? He, I remember him in the kitchen saying, I'm so over all of it, I'm just going to be done. I'm going to go be a bartender on the beach. And I said, no, you won't. And he said, yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to go. And so when we got the email that he had sold and left, we thought, yeah, he really was that stressed. So it's now the summer of 2010 and Chris Smith, 31 years old, tall, tanned and rich, has finally gotten away from the stresses that were driving him crazy. He's now on a yacht, 
leaving the 800 exchange and his worries in his wake. For the past couple of months, he's been emailing his parents, his brother, even his grandfather about his journey and the freedom he feels ridding himself of his cell phone and being fully off the grid. Then his father, Steve, the ex-cop, does start to wonder why Chris has gone so far off the grid. Just to be sure it really is his son, he poses a couple of questions he's sure only Chris can answer. What lake did they use to water ski on, and what kind of boat pulled them? Chris responds, Kelly Lake, of course, but the answer to the other one he uses as a password, so... Chris fires back a set of his own questions. What city were you born in? Few outside the family know that all-American dad Steve Smith was actually born in Salzburg, Austria. Steve's response is characteristically loving. And on that August 15th, he writes, You know it's me because the last time we were together, we hugged. Great hug. Hope you are safe and having a good time. Chris's emails have downs and ups. A couple of weeks later, he's still chasing the sunset, now somewhere in the Pacific. I'm doing good. Getting to do what I enjoy doing the most. You'll know what that is and where I am. Tell Paul we've been there together before. Sorry everything's so short. It has to be this way for a little bit. Love you. So this new message makes it seem like he's not really unwinding. One thing is clear, Chris doesn't want to leave any tracks. In November, he again writes to his brother Paul. No credit cards or bank accounts, bro. I'm off the grid forever. I was actually able to use some gold as currency in India. I'm telling you, they use it all the time there. I was able to pay for my boat ride to Cyprus for a half-ounce Kruger. I'm in Mumbai, India. I am headed to Cyprus and Africa after this. I miss you too, but I have so much to see and do. I'll meet you guys out of country, say dad's hometown, when I'm done seeing where life began. Love you. All of this cloak and dagger stuff is alien to Steve and Debbie Smith. They are outdoors people. They surf, water ski, hike. They travel. But this is not them. And Chris's emails are starting to keep Debbie up at night. I said, where are you? I miss you. Being a mom who loves her son makes you crazy. I remember those feelings exactly. Because mm. I thought, this email saying I'm in Mumbai, India, I'm headed to Cyprus and Africa, sounded crazy to me and dangerous. Dangerous is an understatement. Crazy is more like it. Sailing from Mumbai to Cyprus means charting a course across the Arabian Sea and along the pirate-infested coast of Somalia. And this was barely a year after a particular cargo ship was hijacked, leading to the famous kidnapping of the ship's captain, Richard Phillips, an episode dramatized in the film Captain Phillips, starring Tom Hanks. If the pirates find you, remember, you know the ship, they don't. Chris's parents are worried sick. What the hell has happened to him? Yet Chris seems oblivious to the dangers. He says what he finds in these exotic places is inspiration for new business ventures. While Chris is out sailing the world, 
Paul says Ed seems checked out at work, even though he's still in Orange County. So Ed, after Chris left, had his office door locked. So he would come in at odd hours, quietly, not make any sound, and he'd have a kind of a laptop briefcase thing over his shoulder, and he'd beeline it right through the door quietly to his office, and he'd lock his door, which was strange. And then he put a whiteboard up on his door saying, do not come in, you know, notes to, like, knock before you come in, knock so he could unlock the door. One problem is that Ed has little to sell. Chris was the one who created the ads. Ed was the dealmaker. Ed acts like the business is still right on course, even without Chris. He hands out generous bonuses. A lot of Ed's money these days is going towards those restitution payments to Joe Gray's old company. Forty, sometimes $50,000 twice a month. And missing a payment is not an option. Even so, a few weeks after Chris took off, Ed decides he needs a personal assistant. The man he chooses isn't the classy Carson from Downton Abbey. It's a middle-aged Orange County surfer dude. His name is Kenny Kraft. Now, Kenny's an interesting guy. He was a mixed martial artist back when his crowd just called it a fight club. Kenny and his pals say they're pretty sure they inspired that Brad Pitt movie. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. I first met Kenny Kraft last winter. He was nursing an early afternoon beer, forehead lobstered from the sun, short sleeve pattern buttoned down, his hair perfectly side-parted. Except for a nose bent by a fist or two, Kenny Kraft is the image of a choir boy turned 40. He's had some problems with alcohol, but hitting the bottle didn't work for him. He moved to Hawaii, cleaned up, and was doing okay. He came back to Orange County to care for his ailing parents. That was for love, but he needed money too. Ed wanted a personal assistant and Kenny wanted a job. You come in and you're hoping for a sales job, and, and then he tells you, well... He said, I'd rather have you as an assistant and stay close to me and help me with logistics and simple day-to-day tasks. Okay. And what would you say? Sounds good to me. It sounds a whole lot easier than doing cold calls on the phone. <laughs> yeah. not, not my strong suit. Was it necessary that he had me? Probably not. I'd pick him up early in the morning, drive him to work, sit in the office next door to his, and just basically play on the computer until he needed something for me. Between errands, Kenny has a lot of time to observe office dynamics. Where did you sit? Where was your office at 800 Exchange? Uh, Right next door to Ed's office. And that was Chris's old office, right? Yes. Did you know about Chris at the time? No idea. Kenny says that people in the office gossiped about Chris leaving and the mess he left behind. Mostly, they retold the stories that they'd heard from Ed. Stories in which Ed was a stand-up hero and Chris a coward. I had a vague understanding of what had happened. Ed and Chris embezzled some money. Ed took a plea bargain, returned the money, and was going to do a one-year house arrest, and Chris disappeared with the money. At this point, Paul Smith is still one of the executives, which 
seems a little awkward to Kenny after all that he's heard about Chris. Kenny's also the kind of guy who just comes out and asks questions, even the uncomfortable ones. I specifically remember it. I asked him, like, is it odd that your brother just up and took off and didn't really leave anything behind or, you know, didn't say anything? He's like, no, that's just how my brother is. He just, with the wind, gone. So I wasn't to question it because nobody else in the office questioned it. Kenny's questions might have been the least of the awkward things Paul was dealing with. He had seen and smelled the mess his brother was supposed to have left behind. So yeah, I went into the office when I wasn't supposed to that week. I needed to grab some stuff from my office. And I walked in to the office and it smelled really bad, like a rotten stench. And I walked in, there's fans on, it was very damp, like all the carpets were wet. The walls had been painted in the common area. Paul says he was told his brother had gotten drunk and urinated and vomited all over the place. Those legal problems, the embezzlement case, Kenny heard Chris was just as much to blame as Ed. Yeah, a crook. I mean, it, the whole the whole thing is so unfortunate that two people committed a crime, and it was my understanding that Chris took off with the money, and Ed seemed to be more esteemed and took the physical challenge, you know, returned the money, which made him seem more upstanding. Ed isn't cleaning up just carpets. There's yet another lawsuit. This time, Chris's old employer, Leadpoint, is suing him and the 800 exchange. The suit alleges Chris and Ed's business was built on Leadpoint's stolen company secrets. It's this ongoing legal case that seems to make Chris reluctant to return to the U.S. And it's one of the reasons Ernesto Aldover is still working for him. Chris asked me to represent him in that manner, and he was adamant that he hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, and in fact, he spent a lot of time putting together documents to show that he hadn't done what they were alleging. The documents are part of Chris's defense, but the case can't proceed until Leadpoint's lawyers depose Chris. And when I told Chris in an email that he needed to come back, that's the first time he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried I don't want to come back. Adover wonders what his client is so afraid of. It just doesn't make sense. By not showing up, he'll likely lose the case. And Aldover can't defend a client who will neither show up nor respond to his emails. And after Chris said that he didn't want to come back to the United States, I called the state bar to say, well, I have a client who doesn't want to, that doesn't want to participate in this litigation anymore. What are my obligations? And, and basically, um, what I learned was that I had an obligation to withdraw from the case. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games.
People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. There are many ways to be irresponsible. Running away is one. Not attending to your business when it's running into the ground is another. Paul Smith says part of his job became fending off angry clients, demanding to know what happened to their money. Where was the money going? It was going into Ed's pockets, gambling or wherever. And he had charged over $400,000 with one of our clients. They were pissed. They came to the office very angry. And it was a very uncomfortable setting. Ed is cashing the customer's checks, but the money is not being used for its intended purposes. Ed's been paying that restitution. The staff is still being paid. He's even paying Kenny Kraft, his personal assistant. And some of the rest goes to Las Vegas and doesn't come back. Despite the turmoil in the office, those trips to Sin City don't stop. Kenny Kraft remembers being blown away by their extravagance. A couple of Rolls Royces pull up drive us out to the tarmac at Orange County Airport where there's a jet waiting for us. There's a few girls on the plane already. From where we were gambling, that was a whole new level. Like, wow, we're on private jets now. Just so happened I knew the co-pilot. So I'm like, wow. I'm like, well, you're doing good for yourself. He's like, so are you. I'm like, I guess so. At that point, just flew into Vegas. Same thing, landed. Uh, two Rolls Royces waiting for us on the tarmac. Straight to... Wind property, the Encore. Now, the Encore Hotel and Casino is the pinnacle of the high end in Las Vegas. Ed and his entourage check into the exclusive tower suites. But neither Ed nor the company is going to see a bill for this. It's all being comped. Walk into the room. It's two stories. Elevator in the room. You know, to the second floor. There's rooms at each wing. I don't know if you disseminate east to west, but we laughed about it. Um, each one, we had our own wing. Billiard room downstairs. Uh, there's a massage room upstairs with a closet that opens up. And in that closet, there's another doorway. And that doorway goes down to one of the unmarked doors. So if you're having people over that maybe you don't want to be seen with, they can do a quick exit. One of the secrets of Vegas. Now, high rollers like Ed get a dedicated butler called a host. The guys from Orange County get an idea. So they ask their host to bring up a few of those electric scooters they keep on hand for guests who have trouble walking. We're going to joust. Yeah, joust. The scooters are horses. The pool cues are lances. Coming at each other full speed in the carts. And there's a room full of people, the main foyer. And bam, we hit each other. The host walks in and she is no. She's like, of everything I've ever seen, you guys are out of control. This is way too much. You're destroying property. I'm like, wow, we're really, I mean, we're setting a precedent here. It's certainly wild, but Ed is an expert at making lavish seem normal. We had a 20 top table with eight bottles. Bottles give me $1,000 each. And I think we had probably around 20 people. And it's like, when you do that, they bring the bottles out with sparklers. It's really obnoxious, just so everybody sees you're spending all this money and, you know, Ed's sitting in the middle of the table with people around him. 
you could see it was just glutton for it. For the best tables at casinos and clubs, there are also palms to grease. And as Ed Shin tells me, quite a lot of them. The secret to what I did was you, you tip the people on the lower and middle levels as, as well as you can. The guys at the door, the guy at the door, you give him $100, a couple hundred dollars. You know, the guy working security, if you want to get to the front of the line, every time you're tipping him $100 when you show up, all of a sudden he knows who you are. Come on up, you know, because when you shake hands, now you're giving him a couple hundred dollars. Then the guy that manages the floor, you know, you're giving him $500 a tip every time. Well, of course he's going to, you know, 500 Sometimes if, you know, if we're winning money early, so then I'm using the winnings of the, you know, the casino to get to dole out these big tips. So then sometimes it might be $1,000. $1,000 tips. It's part of Kenny Kraft's job to ensure that no unauthorized fingers pluck the wad of cash from Ed's pocket and to see that gambling chips don't just walk off the craps table. It's an interesting line of work, just making sure nobody pinches chips off the table. There have been incidences in the past where people would walk up to the rail and pull a chip. That could be a $100 chip, that could be a $10,000 chip. And the casino's not concerned. It's not their money. They're not paying for your security. Losing doesn't seem to phase Ed. And winning poses its own fun challenges. We did come up a few times where there was a lot of money that had to be deposited in different Wells Fargo's. I think it was over 300 grand at one point. It was fun. We just took a tour in the Rolls Royce and drove around Vegas depositing money all over town. Where do you store $300,000 in cash? What are you holding it in? In a bag, just a duffel bag. Rolling through Vegas with duffel bags bursting with cash means you can buy just about anything. And you can sure throw a fabulous party. And there's nothing that makes a get-together more memorable than attractive company. If you want to create the impression that you're successful and desirable, atmosphere models sure can help. How does it work? Say you're inviting some people you want to impress to a dinner. You have a quiet word with the concierge or someone in the know, and just like that, a limo full of breathtakingly beautiful people appears to join you for dinner. So they were there to lighten the atmosphere while we were there talking business. And Mingling with models ups your coolness level. The best part? No matter how toad-like you or your companions might be, they are paid to pay you attention. It's good work if you can find it, and if you're as beautiful and as smart as Tiffany Taylor is, you can. Tiffany Taylor. Yeah, you have heard that name before. Miss November 1998. Galapagos Tiffany, the playmate whom Chris's email had said, sailed off into the sunset with him in a bag of gold coins. And guess who is going to bump into her? It's on one of those 800 exchange trips to Vegas in October of 2010, four months after Chris set sail, that Paul Smith finds himself face-to-face with a striking dark-haired woman. Tiffany Taylor, yeah. I saw her there and I was very excited to see her because I hadn't talked to anybody that had been with my brother. And so I sat right next to her. And just looked at her and said, so how's Chris? You're the, you left with my brother, right? You went to the Galapagos and all this. And she just stared at me 
like I like I was crazy. She gave you a total blank stare. Total blank stare. You felt like you knew her. She had no idea what you were talking about or who you were talking about. That's right. Just a total blank stare, and so my my gut just dropped, and then it was like, "This is odd. This is this, I knew it was the same girl." You were sure that you recognized her. Yes, it's the same exact girl. It was the picture that I got, and she just looked at me with a blank stare, like I was nuts. And I looked up at Ed across the table, and he looked at me and just shook his head. Paul feels like he's fallen through a wormhole right into the twilight zone or something. Ed, who is right there, assures him he hasn't. I asked him after the, the dinner was over, said, that was the girl that I got a picture of that Chris left with. And he reassured me that that was not the same Tiffany Taylor. It was a different, different Tiffany Taylor. How many Tiffany Taylors can there be? Well, according to what the Tiffany Taylor that Paul met later told investigators, there were at least two other women using the name Tiffany Taylor in Las Vegas at that time. I'm going to synopsize this for you. Tiffany One, you already know about, the Playboy Playmate of November 98, now working as an atmosphere model. Tiffany Number Two is a porn actress, also a brunette, but South Asian. And according to Tiffany Number One, there was a third Tiffany. Tiffany number three is allegedly a $1,500 an hour prostitute, a blonde who Tiffany number one heard had the gall to go to parties and hand out business cards with Tiffany number one's picture on them. I'm not making this up. By the way, the name Tiffany Taylor, that is made up. It's not Playmate Tiffany's real name anyway. So you can imagine why Paul had a hard time figuring out what was really going on here. After the party, Paul tries to contact playmate Tiffany Taylor on Facebook to ask her again about his brother. Nope, she says, never went on a boat with a Chris Smith. The notion that there is more than one Tiffany Taylor leaves Paul puzzled, but with a pair of toddlers at home, a company that's imploding and irate customers on the phone and in the lobby, he doesn't dwell on it. Not long afterward, though, Paul is rattled by another sighting. He's driving by Chris's old Laguna Beach pad, and he can't believe his eyes. Right there, in its usual spot, is a car that he says looks just like his brother's white Range Rover. On the way to Whole Foods or Farmer's Market one morning... And uh, his car was there. It was like, it was strange. Like, why is, so I emailed, you know, why is your, you know, your cars, I saw your car at your house. And I got an email back saying, no, it's impossible. It's at the airport. And then shortly after that, it drove back by the house and it was gone. It was never there again. In our next episode of Cutthroat Inc., the emails from Chris make it seem like he's truly going off the rails. I found a conflict diamond for Paul. Gonna give it to him for his birthday, I missed. LOL. And once the Smith family concludes Chris is probably never coming back, Chris's dad throws some things in his truck and begins driving to Orange County to find Ed Shin. I had actually brought a gun with me. He's packed a tape recorder and a gun.
Cutthroat Inc. is a production of ABC Audio in 2020, reported by me, Matt Gutman, written by me and our producer, Richard O'Regan. Produced and edited by Susie Leo and Oluwakemi Aladisui. Additional reporting by producers Tim Gorin and Sonny Antrim. Our editorial producer was Duan Perrin. Casey Tomchek was our production assistant. Additional support by Lydia Noon. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Our researchers are Felisa Fine, Natalie Savitz, and Brad Martin. Special thanks to Josh Cohan and Stacia Deshishku. Terry Lickstein is our executive producer of this podcast, and David Sloan is our senior executive producer of 2020. 